Welcome to Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. The Match Group owns a large portfolio of online dating brands, including Match.com, Tinder, OkCupid, Plenty of Fish, and a handful of niche dating sites. We also own some international brands, including Meetic, Wealth Scout 24, Twoo, and Pairs in Japan, to name a few of the over 45 brands we operate under. Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. That clip was from our guest this week, Clay Rich, a CPA and currently the director of SEC reporting for the Match Group in Dallas, Texas, parent of the online dating site Match.com. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, and as you'll be able to tell in the beginning, I usually ask our guests pre-show to be prepared to cover their career history with you, our listeners, so that you can get a better idea of how they got to where they are today. Clay is in a a very detail-oriented role, SEC reporting, and he really does a great job of giving us really the complete history of how he got into accounting in the first place, all the way to his present position. And I don't want to give it away, but if you've been listening to the show for a while, Clay's name may be slightly familiar to you. I'm going to keep you in suspense for just a little bit. But let's just say that Clay is very close to one of our previous episode guests. One more item before we get started. If you're listening to this episode out somewhere on your phone and you'd like to get updates when we release new shows, you can simply text the word accounting to 44144 and we'll get you signed up on our email list. Once again, that's accounting to 44144. Very simple. Let's go ahead and get started. This is Clay Rich in Dallas, Texas. Well, welcome, Clay. Thank you for scheduling this with us. I think our audience is going to find your career story very intriguing. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Wonderful. Well, to bring the audience up to speed before we get started, if you've been listening for a while, you may remember episode 16 back in January where we interviewed Mark Rich. If you did happen to catch that episode, you may remember that Mark mentioned he had a family full of CPAs. Well, our guest today is Clay Rich, believe it or not, Mark's twin brother. Frequently, I mention to our guests that I'm open to suggestions that they may have for other individuals to invite on the show. And when I asked Mark, he said, you're never going to believe this, but I have a twin brother that's a CPA, dot, dot, dot. And so obviously, I couldn't resist that. And so I talked to Clay a little bit, and as it turns out, Clay has had a very interesting career himself. So Clay, I definitely want to get into what your present role is. 
But you've got way too many interesting points in the middle just to skip to that. So I don't want to miss anything. Let's start at the beginning. What led you to think about accounting as a potential career in the first place? Yeah, well, when I think back to how I picked accounting in college, I I don't think I gave it much thought. It was a field I had seen my dad and several of his relatives, as you mentioned, in, and and it always leaned towards math and business. Uh, So accounting seemed like a good degree for me. Now, after being in the accounting field for 12 years now, I, I can see that an accounting degree is a great choice for someone not sure where to go within a business school if they want to understand how a business ultimately makes that profit or loss. I didn't opt for the traditional four-year bachelor degree followed by the one-year master's of accountancy. Instead, I structured my time in college to obtain the required 150 hours, total hours, of which the 30 have to be accounting plus the one ethics course to sit for the CPA exam. To do that route, you really have to know where you're going pretty early in your time at college. Otherwise, the one-year master's degree program that are offered across the uh, university system are, are a great option. And in fact, that's what my twin brother did, is he, he did the bachelor's with the master's degree. So I ended up with a bachelor's in accounting and finance, and then another bachelor's degree in organizational management with a minor in human communications. Out of college... I had the opportunity to start my career as an auditor in a big four accounting firm at EY in Fort Worth, Texas. In college, I had worked for a small CPA firm preparing personal taxes for a couple of years. I enjoyed that work, but I'd always heard that going to a larger public accounting firm had a lot of career benefits, specifically around the training you get and the quality of the clients you audit. When I received offers from those firms, it was an easy decision to start my career there. I worked at E&Y for six and a half years, specializing in aerospace and defense. There's a large fighter jet company in Fort Worth that some people may know about. Getting to walk the factory line and and performing the inventories at the client was probably one of the neatest things during my time at EY. There are only so many aerospace and defense companies in the area, although they kept me busy about 50 to 75% of the year. So I had time to do audits of an airline seat manufacturer, a real estate company, a home builder, a resort in Sonoma, California. Let me tell you, toughest audit to have to go stay at the resort while I did the audit. A restaurant, a retailer, actually got to do a ranch, a small oil and gas company out of state, and one huge 30-year natural gas hedge that no one would settle after the Enron collapse. So that was interesting. (laughs) Through all that, I got experience in IFRS, the International Accounting Standards, SEC reporting, and I got to see a subsidiary of a publicly traded company, and then also helped lead recruiting efforts at Ernst & Young. As you can tell, the experience was all over the board, and I don't know that that was typical for a big four accountant, but because I was in a smaller office with a large diversification of clients, I got to take advantage of those benefits and saw a lot of different industries and a lot of different areas of accounting. About the time I made manager at EY, I had to make a decision. Did I want to stay in public accounting and try to become a partner in the firm, or did I want to find another opportunity that would be as challenging as big four public accounting, but that would provide more balance in my life? I ultimately started looking for a new position and reached out to a few recruiters to begin my search after my first busy season as a manager. I was pretty selective about what I was looking for in my next opportunity and would only submit my resume to the opportunities that I felt would be a challenge. 
this was still grow my career. I, I didn't want to stall out my career after leaving the big four. I still enjoyed my job and co-workers at UI. Uh, there was no need to move on until I found the opportunity that I was excited about. After about 10 months of searching for the right fit, I started calling the recruiters to have them stop looking for a new op- opportunity. The busy season in the first quarter of the year was starting, and I didn't really want to leave my teams in EY and Alerts during the busiest time of the year. A new recruiter that I hadn't told I, I wasn't looking anymore called about an opportunity for a company that was already public and was in the process of breaking off a portion of the company into a newly formed public company or a spinoff. The opportunity would be to come in and file the S-1 forms to take the new company public and then continue filing the public filings for the newly formed company. Uh, it was just an opportunity I, I really couldn't pass up. This was a really interesting opportunity because it was in Fort Worth, which is where I was located at the time. And there aren't just a whole lot of public companies starting up in Fort Worth. Although I could have gone over to Dallas, there were plenty of jobs over there with new public companies. The opportunity was in an oil and gas company named Quicksilver Resources. If you'll remember, my expertise at EY was not in oil and gas, although I had audited a non-public oil and gas company, enough to know some of the terms they used. I made sure the recruiter knew this because I thought for sure they would want someone with oil and gas experience. I went through the interview process and expressed my interest in the position, again, letting the hiring manager and chief accounting officer slash controller know that I had limited oil and gas experience, especially in the way they kept their oil and gas assets, which was under the full cost method. The thing that stood out to me in those interviews was the hiring manager saying he could take someone who was smart and could be willing to learn, and he could teach the oil and gas part of the job. If it wasn't for that hiring manager taking a chance on an aerospace and defense auditor for an SEC reporting job in the oil and gas industry, I don't know that my career would have taken me where I am today. When I started at Quicksilver, I jumped right in with preparing the year in financials to be included in the S-1. Through some attrition, the company needed someone who could handle hedge accounting for the parent company. I raised my hand. I mean, I had audited a derivative before I could do this, or so I thought. It was when the PwC consultant was looking at our hedge positions and the fact that we had applied for hedge accounting. The expert from PwC told me that this was one of the more complicated hedge accounting portfolios he had seen and so I, I, was, I was questioning my decision to volunteer for the uh, hedge accounting position to take that responsibility because I still had to prepare the S1 for the spinoff company. I figured out how to do hedge accounting and was soon the expert on hedge accounting at the company, something I hope to never have to use again, actually. On the company I was spinning off, we would file the, an S1 with the SEC and would get comment letters back from them. Uh, we did that a couple of times. And we were told on our last letter that all we needed to do was file the S-1 with some legal documentation attached and that we could become a publicly traded company. You know, success. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At this point, the company decided not to spin the company I was working on and that we we would instead keep the assets due to the poor market conditions in the natural gas markets, specifically the natural gas liquids such as propane, butane, and such. Uh, At this point, I had been with the company for six months. I guess I never thought about the possibility of not going public. People had told me to be careful going with a company that was in the process of going public, saying anything could happen, and I guess that's what they meant. The controller had told me if I could give him some time, he would find a spot for me in the company. 
Through a series of fortunate events, the CAO slash controller at the parent company got promoted to CFO and retained his title as CAO. The director of financial reporting at the parent company then got promoted to controller of the parent company, and I was offered the financial reporting position at the parent company. I went from filing the IPO documents, although we didn't go public, straight into filing the current reports, the Form 10Ks, 10Qs, and 8Ks the very next quarter. Throughout my time at Quicksilver, I always had the SEC reporting function as my main responsibility, and we were in the capital markets quite a bit, so I got to experience filing S-4s, to exchange private placement debt, filing a shelf registration form on Form S-3, filing an S-8 for employee stock awards, preparing offering memorandums for those private placements of debt. And I also added accounting systems under my responsibility at one point as well and got to design a a very systematic way to prepare some tax records for around 1,000 properties. It was a really enjoyable time. The team was great and really enjoyed the challenge and found the job really rewarding. Now, the oil and gas market started to take a turn in 2014, and we were a heavily leveraged company. We had refinanced about three quarters of our debt in 2014, but could not refinance the lowest level of debt, the subordinated debt. It also happened to be some of the earliest debt that was due. Since it was the lowest level of debt, the more senior debt would spring in front of this debt, and that brought the maturity dates even earlier. For our year in 2014 10K, we were facing a going concern opinion from our auditors, which would make all of our debt due immediately. Before we filed our 10K, our company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which would allow us to restructure and continue to operate as a company. There was a lot of reporting when it comes to bankruptcy, and I was on the front lines preparing financial filings for the court. It's definitely not something you cover in your degree at school, and it's not something I had experienced in public accounting. It it was interesting, and we had advisors the whole way through the process to help out. Our plan was to continue as a public company and reemerge as a public company on the other side, but with the banks being the owners instead of institutions. We thought we could accomplish the whole bankruptcy transaction in about six months, and they wanted me to stay on to continue preparing the SEC filings and then to continue the filings after bankruptcy as a new company. Bankruptcy is an interesting process, and the company is not really in control at that point. The bank started to fight about how the company would split. The price of natural gas continued to decrease. And ultimately, about nine months after we entered bankruptcy, the decision was made to put the company up for auction. The bank still could be the owners through the auction process, but it would help establish the fair market value of the company so the banks could get the best price. In January 2015, the auction happened, and a private oil and gas company won the two-day auction. In the next three months, we started preparing to hand the company over to the new owners. A few field employees stayed on, but everyone else knew that they would have to find a new job in three months. I reached out to my recruiting network and started searching for the best opportunity I could find with short notice. I was expecting my third son in April of that year and had been told my last day would be a few days after his expected birth. My last day was eventually pushed back a month and a half due to closing transaction delays, but it was still coming. I had to find a new job. At one point, I had 12 different recruiters searching for a position. Several had heard about the bankruptcy and had started calling everyone in the company at that point. The job market was really strong and still is in Dallas-Fort Worth. And within a couple of months, I had three high-quality job offers 
varying from an IFRS reporting position, a controller position, and then a director of SEC reporting. I think the varying experience I obtained in public accounting and then the additional experience I obtained in industry allowed me to have such great opportunities. The position I ultimately selected and is where I am now is as the director of SEC reporting for the Match Group with headquarters in Dallas, Texas. The Match Group owns a large portfolio of online dating brands including Match.com, Tinder, OkCupid, Plenty of Fish, and a handful of niche dating sites. We also own some international brands including Meetick, Love Scout 24, Twoo, and Pairs in Japan, to name a few of the over 45 brands we operate under. Interactive Corp, or IAC out of New York, a publicly traded company, spun the match group into its own publicly traded company about six months before I started. IAC still owns a controlling interest in match group. Match Group hired me to bring the SEC function down from New York to Dallas and to get the function to where we can ultimately completely spin off from IAC when the time comes. Our group recently hired and expanded to cover the equity accounting function as well. I think we've got a great group of accountants here at Match Group, and the atmosphere is really unique for a technology company, especially in Dallas, Texas. Hmm. Wonderful. You know, thank you. You've uh, <laughs> you went into a whole lot more detail than a lot of our guests do. I, I really appreciate that. You're you're really prepared. Do you mind? I've got a few questions. I'd like to go back and yeah. in some of the history and just cover because I think that you know, you've had some tremendous opportunities, and I think that that how you got those may be really beneficial. You, you mentioned that you had a lot of variety at EY. And it may have been that, you know, you were in the right place at the right time and took advantage of it. But is there anything you can put your finger on that, you know, any choices you made that you think led to having that additional variety instead of being a little more pigeonholed? I don't know. It's hard to say, well, what would have happened now? We have a really good case study because my twin brother and I both started at Ernst & Young in Fort Worth at the same time. So his career went one way, my career went another. So part of it was, it was a smaller office anyways for a big four, and, and we both couldn't be on the same job because of the possibility that we could be working on the same something and, and would review each other's work. And so part of it was they had to keep us separated. <laughs> uh, but then some of it was in the recruiting process, the person who recruited me said, I think I want to have him on my team. And so he took me in and he was aerospace and defense. I didn't know that I would enjoy aerospace and defense, but he was someone that had recruited me during the college process. And so he put me on that job and I really enjoyed the, the client and that client kept me busy a lot of the year, but it, it wasn't all of the year. So I was able to go on and see other clients throughout the rest of the year. And some of them were kind of, they were off cycle, if you will. They had different year ends. One had a August 31st year end, which worked really well into my schedule. Some had, they typically had off cycles to the year end process. The aerospace and defense company I was on wouldn't really let my time go during the critical times. And so because of that, I had to work in kind of these odd companies, if you will. And that kind of led to being able to see more or a variety of companies. I just kind of filled in. The other thing is when an opportunity came up to 
go on to a, you know, the home builder. I said, yeah, I want to do that. I'll, I'll do that. One was a opportunity that I wouldn't have picked. The home builder went bankrupt. And so my schedule freed up magically in February, which was a really busy time. So then I got to go be on the restaurant, a national chain out of town, but it was still an opportunity that I understand the restaurant industry now in more detail. The real estate client was one that I had availability after my time with my major client, and I was able to go in and, and do lease accounting. And that was beneficial because I've used the lease accounting knowledge I learned there in both of my jobs after Ernst & Young. And so it, it's one of those that I think I was open to opportunities. It was partially the person who recruited me, taking me in on his job. And a lot of people will go into the big four and say, I really want to be in this industry. And in some cases, you have to do that. Mm-hmm. In, in larger offices in the big four, you do have to say, I want to be in the real estate industry. I want to be in the industrial products industry. Since I was saying, I want to be in the aerospace and defense industry, there weren't as many opportunities in the area, and I had to supplement with something else. And so that was part of it, too, as I said, the industry I picked kind of required to have filling in of other industries. And so it definitely gave me a lot more opportunity across different industries by picking that particular industry for my office. So... Okay. It, it sounds like you probably got a reputation also for, you know, saying yes, that, yeah, you know, for not turning down assignments or being too particular. If you're willing to take the assignments that no one else wants mm-hmm. and you're able to take a job that is notoriously has a bad reputation and create a, a better atmosphere either uh, on the EY side of the team by streamlining the process or by making the process for the manager or partner easier, it gets noticed for sure in the big four. And being able to go in, take those opportunities that maybe other people don't want, making them better, people start noticing that for sure. And that and that's definitely a key to success in the big four is getting noticed because a lot of people are there at the big four and, and they're really smart people. And standing out among the crowd is what you're trying to do. Okay. Okay. Something else you said, uh, when you got the job at Quicksilver, and and I'm obviously paraphrasing quite a bit, but you basically said that you didn't have the background and and you got hired anyway, or not not the resume, you know, experience, so to speak, in in that industry and and that kind of thing. And obviously that's an issue that many people face when they're looking for a new opportunity is, they're not a perfect match for the job description, but, you know, they know they could learn it. Thinking back, and I know you may need to think about this for a second, but thinking back, is there anything that you could put your finger on that you just maybe did well in that interview process or any, anything that led to them saying, you know what, we're going to give this guy Clay a shot? Yeah. I mean, when I was thinking back on my career before the this call, I, uh-huh. I was thinking that that was a really critical point in my career. It would have been really easy for Quicksilver to say, no, he doesn't have the oil and gas experience, and he, he doesn't really have a whole lot of SEC experience of actually the Form 10K and 10Q portion of it. 
again, the client I worked on was a subsidiary of a public company, but wasn't the one actually filing the forms. And so they could have real easily said the experience wasn't there. I really look back and I say that hiring manager had a really good ability to look at the resume and to look at the individual and say, what can I do with this experience? And he he definitely took a chance is how I put it. And, And I think that's very accurate because what if I came in and didn't I wasn't a quick learner. He would, you know, he would have been sitting there having to do a lot of the work himself. So I think what I tried to convey in the interview was that I was able to adapt and change quickly to the different industries I was in that I was willing to learn and to I was able to demonstrate through my time at ENY how I had to learn at changing industries a lot to adapt to those audits. And so being able to take that, maybe it wasn't specific to the oil and gas company, but having a little bit of oil and gas knowledge, being able to talk the talk a little bit uh, and to not be sitting there flat-footed definitely probably helped in the interview to sell the idea that, well, I don't have, I'm not the expert. I can become the expert really fast. And I I think that made a big difference. And I I do think a lot of it was that hiring manager was open to taking that kind of a chance. And so sometimes when hiring managers take chances like that, it, it can backfire really bad, but really good hiring managers can find someone with a, maybe not a perfect fit background, but can say, this is the person though for the job. And I think that's what happened. Hmm. Okay. And it sounds like you are, I can't think of another way to say it, almost self-taught on all the SEC reporting, because I know that's not something that you know we get standard with our bachelor's degree, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that I ever read an SEC standard or rule in my college career. I'm sure there was maybe something in there about a Form 10K, but a lot of it is self-taught. A lot of it was I had one SEC filer as an auditor. And so I I had the ability to see that, to learn there. So there was a little bit of that. I I audited the SEC company for about four or five years, I think. They were pretty small. They were a smaller company. So they have different reporting standards than most public companies. But I was able to kind of get my feet wet there, understand the lingos, kind of get familiar with the rules and regulations that govern SEC filings, and really get up to speed that way. Now, there's no substitute for actually doing it. And when you actually do it, it's getting in there and reading. And And I read a lot. If it was on the hedge accounting front, I had audited a derivative. It wasn't under hedge accounting. So when I raised my hand and said, I will do the hedge accounting for Quicksilver, I had to read a lot and and get up to speed quite a bit to be able to handle that. If it was doing the SEC filings, it was a lot of reading of the rules of searching out for best resources out there Mm -hmm. and, and really taking the time to learn it. You know, same thing in equity accounting here at Match Group. That's not an area that I had specifically prepared or been a part of previously, but it was raising my hand and saying, I can do that. Getting into the actual standard, reading the guides that the big four accounting firms have put out, 
and, and digging in to become the expert in that area. Mm. You really do have a can-do kind of attitude. <laughs> it, it's paid off, too, for you. I can tell. That's wonderful. But talking about the match group, I guess, what, what have you found unique or, or interesting about working with the match group? Honestly, I had no idea they had 45 brands. That boggles my mind. But what, what do you enjoy about working there? Yeah, Match Group is a great company to work for. Uh, there are not a lot of online dating companies out there that need SEC reporting, and definitely not very many within the counting team around 50 worldwide. I can't tell you how many people, once they find out I work for Match Group, and then I tell them that we own Match.com, Tinder, OkCupid, Plenty of Fish, etc. They inevitably tell me how they met their spouse on one of those sites, or they have a relative or a good friend who met their spouse on one of those sites. So there's definitely that part of the job that people just want to talk about that if, if they've had an experience with it. We're headquartered in Dallas, Texas, where most of the accounting function sits. We have offices in Paris, France, where our European accounting team sits. We've got offices in L.A., in New York, in Vancouver, Canada, Tokyo, Japan, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and London, among others. So we truly are worldwide. So it definitely is an interesting uh, dynamic. You know, Match.com was started in 1995, and I don't think people think of it as being that old, but I guess that 22 years really isn't that old. But for the internet, that's really old. And so to have Match.com, one of the older ones, and then to have the same company that owns Match.com to have incubated Tinder from the get-go, one of the hottest, most downloaded dating apps worldwide, there's a lot of interesting dynamics between having kind of one of the oldest and one of the hottest in the same category. Uh, it really showcases how having the expertise of online dating can really make a big difference when developing the new offerings out there and keeping it fresh. The office itself, it has a pretty unique atmosphere at Match Group. We're a technology company, and then we're also in the online dating business. So it's not your typical corporate culture, if you will. <laughs> We've got pool tables, shuffleboard, cornhole, putting greens, a giant Jenga set, a game room with the N64 and PlayStation. We've got monthly happy hours for the whole office, a summer party at a local lake, plenty of snacks and drinks. Just I mean, the environment is is pretty laid back. You know, no dress codes. Guys are showing up in shorts, t-shirts, kind of whatever, however you work best, we want you to come and work the best. However, we've got a lot of open areas to collaborate. And so it's, it's nice. The, all the desks that everyone has, they go from sitting to standing. So just really kind of that technology feel to it. With so many worldwide offices, we also have video conference ability in all the conference rooms, and we use that quite a bit to communicate worldwide. So it definitely brings the offices closer together through that functionality. Around the offices, they've got wedding announcements of people who've met on Match.com uh, <laughs> and the other sites around kind of showing the success. So it's definitely not your typical corporate office, and I think that environment makes it fun to work in and attracts some of the best people in the area. So. Wow. That, that is interesting. I, I, in Dallas, Texas, too. In Dallas, I mean, Texas. We're, that's, we're yeah. We're talking about L.A. The, here. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, sometimes it feels like Silicon Valley, I'm sure, if anyone's watched that show on HBO. so. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing all that. I, I didn't – I guess I, it makes sense, but the atmosphere is a whole lot more 
relaxed, you know, than, than I was picturing. So, cause it's still an FCC reporting company, you know, so I just, we're, I we're still a publicly traded company and we have to spin out financials just like everyone else. But yeah, the atmosphere is definitely different. Okay. Touching on that. I mean, for younger individuals that are maybe, maybe they're, you know, just getting into the big four and they're thinking about their future later on, or just getting out of college, you know, and they're, they're trying to, you know, select a path. What are the deadlines like in SEC reporting? You know, what do you like about it? You know, what's stressful about it? You know, sort of, sort of what's it, what's the quote typical day or typical month like for you? Yeah. So SEC reporting typically operates on a quarterly cycle. We are a calendar year in company. So for us, it's the Aprils, the Julys, the Octobers of the year for the quarters. And then for the year-end timing, it's January and February that we get really busy trying to get out the 10Q or the 10K. During that time, I patiently wait for the accounting team to close the books. They usually get it done in about five business days. So they close the books up pretty fast. After the books have been closed and consolidated, I start to run several reports that I've built out of our reporting system to to really parse out the information that's contained in the financial statements, really breaking it down and trying to analyze it to find the trends. From there, I, I start asking a lot of questions to understand what occurred or in some cases why something I was expecting from previous discussions and it, it did not occur how I thought it would. I ask a lot of questions to find out what's happened or what should have happened. I take all that information and I start writing. I'm an accountant who writes. I'll write our MDNA or the management discussion and analysis. I'll have a draft off to our CFO, CAO, controller, and general counsel to review a couple of days after the books are closed. I'll also start writing the earnings release with our investor relations team. Uh, different organizations have it structured differently, but our process is the SEC group has the responsibility for the majority of the earnings release. At the same time, we'll start to populate the financial statements for the 10Q or 10K filing. And we've got our process set up to where we can pull out of the system and get it into our form 10Q, 10K. We can get about 60 to 70% of the numbers used for the financial statements into the financial statements in about five minutes. So that takes a lot of preparation and a lot of staging to get stuff ready to do that in about five minutes. Wow. Uh, this it really helps our team focus on supporting those numbers, kind of really digging into those numbers for our auditors and, and then making sure that we have the right disclosures around those numbers and that the disclosures are complete and accurate. Uh, we'll also prepare an overall variance analysis for our auditors, and then we also use that to help us understand about the financials. All of this will go through several rounds of editing on the earnings release, the MDNA, the financials. And then at the beginning of the following month, we're releasing our earnings. And a couple of days later, we're filing our 10Q. And in the case of the 10K, about a month after the earnings, we're filing at the end of February. And to keep it kind of match group specific here, we, we celebrate the filing of the 10Q or 10K with a champagne toast for the team. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot of work. And so something to just celebrate the accomplishment of getting out uh, a document like that, it, I mean, it, it took a lot of teamwork to get there. It happens fast, and there's a lot of stuff that's going on during those months or in the 10K, two months. So, it, I mean, that it keeps us really busy during those times. So once we've completed those, call it 
you know, normal filings of the Q and the K. Uh, our team will turn the focus to statutory reports that we have to file with international regulatory bodies throughout the year. Uh, we also support any 8Ks that need to go out to the SEC. We'll start preparing for the next quarterly filing because the next one's just a few months away, always. <laughs> Our team will handle the Section 16 filings for the officers and board members when they transact in our stock. And then we also handle, or we'll support any capital market transactions if that's going out with debt or issuing stock. We'll handle that. We'll, we'll also help out with private placement of debt or shelf offerings, et cetera. Okay. So wow. we'll also, if the investor relations team wants to get out some information publicly, either through a slide deck or an investor release of some sort, and it has financial information in it, we'll usually be called upon to review it for material non-public information. We've got to make sure that information hasn't been included in there that no one else has gotten. And we, we've got to be real careful about making sure all public investors have the same information so the playing field is level. And then we'll also be involved with the new standards with our technical accounting team, understanding how those work and how we're going to be disclosing any of that. Okay. So a lot of stuff going into what the SEC function is doing. One thing I would say about the SEC reporting is you have to be pretty open to constant change. Changing the way you wrote a sentence in a filing, changing plans to file an 8K that has significant financial numbers in it by a deadline, changing the way your reports are pulled to pick up the new account or company that started during the quarter. To be successful, you really have to be able to change and adapt. And the quicker you're able to change and adapt, the more successful you'll be in SEC reporting. Mm -hmm. now, you asked about the deadlines. The yeah. deadlines in SEC reporting are pretty bright lines with the SEC rules that dictate when the filings have to be made by. Uh, you don't often get to push back a filing, and if you do, it usually has consequences with the SEC. When someone doesn't get you a document or, or support on time, your deadline didn't change. So you got to set up that process where you can encounter a delay and not have a late filing. That's really critical in SEC reporting. Okay. You know... I'm just remembering something here. You have a bachelor's in accounting, and then what were the other two majors you ended up So with? it was a bachelor's in accounting and finance, and then a bachelor's in organizational management with a human communication minor. Human communication. Right. Yeah, why not? Okay. <laughs> well, it was something you said, basically your job involves a lot of writing, and then I remembered communications. I was just, yeah, that, that's intriguing. I, I don't know that I don't know that the human communication minor really helped me write. I mean, I think it helps me relate with people. Uh, you know, I kind of have the interpersonal understanding, but I think that really, again, it's it's reading a lot. I've read so many different 10Ks of different companies. You know, when I started at Quicksilver, I read a lot of 10Ks for public oil and gas companies. When I started at Match, I looked at technology companies. You know, you you got to find the voice for the company, and so that takes some time to get used to of finding you know who's who's the voice and and how does it sound, and so I it, it takes a lot of kind of just again 
reading, understanding, and be able to take all that and turn it into the voice of the company and and kind of understanding how your CFO writes and, and how they want to hear it coming across in a public mindset, kind of thinking from an investor relation mindset of how best can I describe this required disclosure, but somewhere, somehow that the investor can understand it to, to help them understand this complex issue. And, and so it takes a lot of kind of weaving all of that together to really be successful at writing for SEC purposes. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you. I, I want to be respectful of your time. And I know I mentioned that I might you know, ask some questions about all the other CPAs in your family, but, but number one, I want to be respectful of your time. And number two, I'm just realizing that if I do that, I may mess up several other episode opportunities, you know, so I probably <laughs> want to do that offline. <laughs> Actually, I thought there was a great question about the bankruptcy. Oh, yes. Sure. Let's talk about that. Can you, I don't think that it's, it's not, I don't have a whole lot, but I, I thought that there were some good points in there. I mean, if someone's listening to this and going through that, I mean, there's some really great points to put in there. So. Okay. Yeah. What, what lessons came out of that for you? You know, was there any good or, or any advice, you know, that you'd have for someone in that situation? Yeah. The bankruptcy is, obviously not something I would wish on anyone. Uh, It creates a lot of uncertainty, and that uncertainty can be tough. Not every bankruptcy is the same, and those that are going through it or those who think their company may be headed in that direction will have to make a very difficult and personal decision. Uh, For me, sticking with the company through bankruptcy was easier because outside of the oil and gas industry, the job market, specifically the accounting, and then even more so, the SEC portion of the accounting market was really strong in the DFW Metroplex. I knew that I could find another job pretty easily if I needed to do so quickly. Our plan as a company was to reemerge as a publicly traded company, so there would be a job on the other side of bankruptcy for me. The company tried to make it easier for those taking that risk with financial incentives, but it was still a tough choice to make. Some individuals at the company determined the risk was too high and found other work right away. Others had that decision made for them through a reduction in force. I joked that bankruptcy would really be a resume builder as a future interviewer might notice and say, oh, I see you have bankruptcy experience. We might be (laughs) headed in that direction. So it'd be nice to have someone with that experience on board. So I, I do actually put it on my resume, but I think that it demonstrates that I had to start reporting in a very different way for the court. And it gives me an opportunity to talk about how I was able to create efficient reporting tools to prepare the court filings quickly and accurately outside of the normal SEC reporting requirements. It shows that I was adaptable and could do other things that, than just the SEC reporting. Okay. Actually, that's a great thing to have on your resume because then you – will know that it's a bad sign if someone starts to ask too many questions about that. <laughs> you seem to be a really good expert in this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah, I did have people be- ask about it saying they like to buy distressed assets, and they thought that having that experience would allow me to really go through and know where to go look for the filings and understand the filings to identify what kind of assets they had really and if it would be a good buy. So, Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it from that, that standpoint. Wow. Well, I end every podcast with the same questions because I like to have some consistency in, in the interviews. First one I always ask, what has been your proudest moment? Yeah, so I'll caveat this to say my proudest professional moment has been the ability to take the SEC functions 
now at two different companies and make process improvements to really streamline the SEC reporting group and best utilize the short amount of time we have to prepare and file those documents. Good deal. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I need to change that question because I know uh, so often the answer is, you know, the birth of my children or <laughs> my <laughs> wedding date or, or that kind of thing. I need to change that to professional. Well, tell us about a mistake you've made and what you learned from it. And, and frankly, the bigger, the better. We like to make mistakes. <laughs> So SEC reporting is a very public type of work. Anyone listening today can go back through all the filings I've made over my time and review any of them and find any error. In, and there's, I'm sure, plenty of errors to be found. Some of them are probably small and you just move on saying you wish you could have changed it. But others are bigger and, and they have a very public announcement to it. While it may not have been a specific thing I did, the end result is that the filing I submitted is being changed. I think what I've learned is that you have to keep moving on and not dwell on the past. You can't always control the past. You got to learn from it and move on. That's so true. That's come out in a lot of the responses to that answer is that, you know, no matter what, the point is to learn from it so, so you don't repeat that one <laughs> and move forward. Yep. So true. Well, let's end with the best piece of advice you've ever received, and then we'll go ahead and say goodbye. There's a lot of smart people in the world, and everyone is an expert in something. Don't forget that you can learn something from everyone. You just have to be looking and be a lifelong learner. Ooh, that is beautiful. Thank you. That is well said. Thank you very much, Clay. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your time. I, this was very thorough. I, I really I had no idea, actually, how large the Match Group was, and I think a lot of our listeners will you know, be familiar with the name Match.com, but in fact, I mean, the names were going so fast, I had a hard time getting them down, so I'm going to have to go back in my notes for some of that. So thank you again. I really appreciate you spending the time with us, and hope you have a great week. Great. I enjoyed my time, too. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Personally, I learned quite a bit about the different aspects of an SEC reporting role. I obviously knew about the 10K and 10Q filings, but I guess I hadn't really thought about all the other filings that come along with that position, as well as the investor relations interaction. That was very interesting. I really appreciate as well his best piece of advice there at the end. It was a great point to end the interview on that I'm paraphrasing here, but you can learn something from everyone. It's a really good point. This has been another episode of Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. At the time of this recording, we're growing by over a thousand downloads a week. And I so, so appreciate that you continue to come back and tell your friends about us as well. If you'd like to subscribe by email and aren't in a place where you can type, simply text the word accounting to 44144 and we'll get you signed up. Once again, that's 44144 and the word to text is accounting. I hope you have a wonderful week. We'll be back soon. There's more to come.